For those of you who aspire to the mission and to preaching and to ministry, know this. God always finds the runt of the litter. It's always Gideon's call. It's not that men aren't strong enough. It's just they just don't know how weak they are. I've decided now, I'm 60, I'll be 62 in a little while. Um, I've been close to death. I've kind of decided what I want on my tombstone. And this is it. I've contributed nothing to my salvation but my sin and nothing to my ministry but my weakness. And, and I want you to know that it is, it is never the problem of strength or a lack of boldness or a lack of intelligence. One of the reasons, and I won't be addressing it tonight, but one of the most important graces in our life is the grace of suffering. Because God can fill a man only to the degree that he has emptied him. It's always Gideon's call. The problem is never that your army's too small. The problem is it's too big. God always uses the runt of the litter. Always. So, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called... Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son. Oh, Lord, it's his countenance that gives us entrance, his work, his value. Oh, Lord, help us in this conference that it not be words upon words upon words upon words, but that there be the work of the Holy Spirit, the clarity of the word, the transformation of lives. That, oh God, burn down the building, but don't let this turn into a preaching contest. Oh, that Christ would be exalted. Christ and Christ alone. Help your people. Help your people, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So he says, For even hereunto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us. He's talking about suffering. 
suffering. It is not a possibility in the Christian life. It will occur. And it will occur not simply because we live in a fallen world that lies under the power of the evil one. The author of your suffering will oftentimes be your father. It's his hand weakening you more and more, day after day, weakening you so that you find your only hope for salvation and your only hope for ministry, your only hope for usefulness in His grace. Oh, how, how you need and I need to be emptied. So think of suffering as a grace. And you're hearing that from someone who is very, very weak and is afraid of suffering. I'm always afraid. But I know that it is absolutely necessary. You will be used of God only to the degree that you have suffered. And it has been appointed unto you to suffer. Not simply for the glory of the cross, but for your own good, for your sanctification. So don't think it a strange thing. You're warned quite often in the New Testament, do not think it a strange thing. It is a necessary thing. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. Um, there's a, a book on history, uh, The Reformers and Their Stepchildren by Verdine, that, uh, that I appreciate a great deal. And he talks about a schism that occurs where many of, not all, but some of those who were more reformed became so involved in theology and in confession, which is absolutely necessary, but laid aside or neglected the imitation of Christ. And then you had other groups, Anabaptist and things, that spoke much of the imitation of Christ, but had laid aside, in my opinion, the roots and marrow of theology so that, and when that happens, any good movement will go astray. Do you understand? Well, I know here in Dr. Beakey's heart, I know in this pulpit, I know in the seminary, there is a desire that such a schism never occur. It should not occur. You're, you're immature in your theology if it doesn't lead to the imitation of Christ. But I'm afraid, especially a young, among the young reformed movement, is that they're not understanding the heart of their fathers. That we know these things, that we be transformed by these things, that we, we know him not just to preach him, but to follow the lamb wherever he goes, to imitate him, to reflect him. Both of these things we must, we must grab a hold of because the scriptures do. It said it suffered for us, leaving us an example. He leaves us an example, not just in suffering, but in everything. You mention any context of life to me, and I can show you that Christ is the example. You say, oh, I got you there. What about marriage? Well, Ephesians 5, I got you there. He's an example to us in everything. And we need to spend more time looking at his life, looking at his simple commands, radical commands, and we need to imitate him. 
And as we do that, as we mature, then as suffering comes along, we'll be more prepared for it. I was recently asked a question and that I, I, we deal a lot with, with Christians in persecuted countries. I'm usually down in a basement every day actually teaching uh, people in house churches and stuff. And, and I had a question. They said, it looks like another wave of persecution is coming. How do we prepare for it? And I said, therein lies your problem. The New Testament teaches nothing about preparing for persecution. The New Testament teaches you every day you are to prepare to be more and more like Christ. You are to train yourself in righteousness. You're to train yourself in the promises of God. And in that daily activity, using those daily means of grace, you prepare yourself, not just for persecution, but for life. Christ is our example. And especially some of you young men who've reduced the canon of the New Testament down to just the book of Romans and Ephesians. Um, I want to encourage you to study the Gospels and look at Christ. Look long at Christ. So that ye should follow in his steps. Not just in suffering, not just in persecution, but in absolutely everything. One of my favorite texts, maybe in the whole Bible, is Revelation 14. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. Oh, if you said, Brother Paul, we'll give you one passage to define you. What, what would you choose? They follow the lamb wherever he goes. Verse 22, who did no sin. Second Corinthians 5.21, he knew no sin. He didn't even know it. It had nothing to do with him. He had no fellowship with it. There was this differences as night and, and day. There was no agreement. There was no truce. And he didn't just defeat sin because he was able to resist it. He was able to defeat sin because it had no hold on him. There was no bait that could be dangled in front of him that he did not hate because he was the only righteous man. Neither was there guile found in his mouth. Here's the New Testament relationship between heart and mouth, heart and mouth, heart and mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. Why? Well, because he loved people. Well, yes, but that's not what the text is going to tell us. He committed himself to him that judges righteously. Now, here's something that we're going to have to learn. Because as I'm going to state here in just a minute, I believe that we're entering into a time where many of you may suffer dearly for your faith. You suffer dearly. How do you do it? I've heard missionary tales of people being able to bear with terrible suffering and all sorts of things because of their love for people. And that's admirable, but for me, that's not strong enough medicine. It's just not strong enough. I have walked with him for 40 years. I have walked through wars and threats and bombs. I have been so afraid I couldn't breathe. It wasn't love for people, I'm ashamed to say. But it was a biblical view of the faithfulness of God. 
There's going to come a time when there's nothing but darkness around you. There's nothing to feel. There's just groping in darkness, and that is all. And that's when you're going to have to be able to trust in the name of your God. Uh, let me just say this. Probably should say it later, but you've all heard story, stories of men in prison who have been there for years and years and years, and some of them have testified that it was like a 20-year you know, honeymoon with Christ in prison. And I'm sure that's true for some, but I have known a lot of men in prisons personally. And I've never heard one of them say that. But they all said that when they were thrown in, it's as though the presence of God did not go with them. And they were left in utter darkness. And all they could do was rely upon what the scriptures said about God. And Christ here, he's the only righteous man and he makes it through that great just, just war of temptation because why? He committed himself to God. He knew God and he committed himself to God. And then it says in verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by those stripes, by whose stripes he were healed. Here's what I want you to see. Any comparison between our suffering and Christ's suffering has severe limitations. As I will point out hopefully later if I have time, is that when saints have suffered, some suffer having some semblance of the presence of God, those who do not have a semblance of the presence of God, they have the promises of God, but Christ went through his suffering with God striking him. When he was on that tree, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No one ever suffered. No saint has ever suffered as Christ suffered. So there is comparison but it's only to a certain limit. No one ever did the things Jesus did. And no one ever did the things he did with so much against him. No one. Now, I want to get to, to the reason why I think I'm here tonight. When I was in Peru, most of my almost 11 years there was in the midst of war. It was a terrible civil war. Thousands upon thousands of people slaughtered. Bombs and guns. Horrific immoralities. Tearing the country apart. Up in the, the Andes and some of the places in the high jungle, churches were just literally just burned down and, and Christians were forced into one army or the other and others were killed. And I remember one pastor getting up in a small pastor's meeting. It was, you could hear the bombs. And he just said this from Philippians 1.29, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for his sake. Now, I believe that there's a growing application of this text and many others 
to the church in the West. You do not have to be a prophet or a man from Issachar to discern the times. Things are changing. And I would be quite surprised that if in a matter of years that there is real, felt persecution. If things continue, it's going to be real, it's going to be felt, it's going to be hard. And we have to ask ourselves with this writing on the wall, will we be like that wicked king, Belshazzar? Will our loins go loose and our knees knock together? Will we be totally and utterly unprepared? Not because we haven't been preparing, but because we haven't been seeking to be more and more like Christ on a daily basis. Will will we be unprepared? Or will we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God? I have been told in many different sources that in the last three years, primarily because of coronavirus, that 42% of evangelicals did not return to church. It seems that God has done through a pandemic what he could not do through our pitiful preaching. God is cleansing his church. There's another thing I think that we should recognize. It seems to me that whenever there is a resurgence in the sovereignty of God, that is the reformed faith, that a Christian people are on the verge of suffering because it is only that type of confidence in an all-sovereign God that can bring God's true people through the fire. So I'm going to tell you that I, I do believe with all my heart, that we are entering into troubled times. Now, I could say right now, we need men. And we do. We do. I've never seen anything like it. We need men. But not men who wrestle in a gym or lift weights. Not men with Hebrew tattooed on their arm. And if you have that, I'm happy for you. Do you know what my definition? I have tried to define what is manhood. What does it mean to be a man? I was raised on a cattle ranch around a lot of tough people. What does it mean to be a man? It is the ability, the conviction to lay down your life, to always be laying down your life for Christ, for your wife, for your children, for your brothers and sisters in Christ. If there's an enemy at the gate, you run to the gate and stand in front. If there's an enemy behind, you run behind and stand there. If there's clothes to be washed, if there's dishes to be done, it doesn't matter. Whatever it takes, you pour out your life. That is a man. And that is love. For God so loved the world he gave. Christ loved the church and gave himself. We need men and women 
They, they may be frightened at the fall of a leaf. But it's their giving themselves to the Lord and entrusting themselves to him that caused them to go on. And people like that can only be created in seminary. No. In a Greek class. No. In scripture. On your knees. In the night watch. I recommend countless people to the seminary here. I hardly go anywhere that I do not recommend this seminary. But I always warn the students, I said, please don't go to seminary until you can tell me how many times you've read through your English Bible. Have you kept the night watch? Have you tarried with him in prayer? Have you exhausted all these means? We need men and women who don't just You need to read books. My library is large and I read all the time and I love books. But books without the Bible create parrots. Books without prayer create very little. Oh, I would beg you, as I'm here to talk about suffering in Christ, I may be getting off topic here, but I am begging you, there is a dearth of men and women who simply read their Bibles over and over and over and over again. Now, I want to get back to my main topic, which is Christ is our example. But here's a point that I want you to understand. When we talk about Christianity, the main attack point is usually the inerrancy and infallibility or inspiration of Scripture. Once they work their way past that, it's the deity of Christ. It's the person of Christ, always attacking Christ. And so one of the things that conservatives, one of the things that reformed men down through the ages, even the church fathers, on and on, one of the great battlegrounds is the deity of Christ, the deity of Christ, the deity of Christ. It has to be defended, defended, defended. He is deity in the fullest, most complete and remarkable sense of the term. We must always acknowledge the deity of Christ. But herein lies the problem. Most of us have spent so much time defending deity that that we do not deny, of course, his humanity. That would be outside of orthodoxy. But I don't think we have thought through his humanity to the point where sometimes it's almost like he's a demigod somewhere between God and man. No, he was truly and remarkably God in the fullest sense of the term, but he was truly and remarkably man, not just man, the man. And it is only in realizing that that you can begin to see him as a true example. That his, his suffering, his pain, his temptations, they were not mirages, they were not illusions, it wasn't theater, it was real. And although we have to be extremely careful, because there are places where fools rust in, where angels fear to tread, with regard to the, the relationship between the deity and the humanity and the life of Christ, but what you need to know is Christ was the last Adam. And what he did, he did in submission to the Father. He did as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, when you see it that way, 
in his incarnation, then you see, yes, he really is our example. He really is our example. He really does understand that our elder brother conquered, overcame as a man. So we look at John 1.1 and it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God was the Word. True deity in every sense of the term. And yet in verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He became flesh. And when we get over to Romans chapter 8, verse 3, we see that he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, that doesn't mean that in any part of his being there was corruption or sin. No, he was, even on the cross when he bore our sin, he was the spotless lamb bearing sin. It was never a corruption of his nature. Not one flaw, not one shadow in him. But he suffered the innocent maladies of the fall. All the consequences of the fall. The weakness, the thirst, the hunger, the fear. All the things that grab you and I and toss us back and forth like a ship on the sea. He knew it. He felt it. And he overcame it. He overcame it. In Philippians who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. If you ever have someone that doubts what form means, just go to equality. Because obviously that's what Paul has in mind. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I love what Dr. MacArthur says in his, his profound simplicity. He says, Jesus Christ emptied himself completely of every vestige of advantage and privilege. He became a real man. A real man. Now, about three years ago, I have made it my thing to study the gospel. I figured if there was one thing that I could take my very limited intellect and dedicate it to, it would be one thing. I would try to understand the gospel. And so for the last 20-some years, 25 years, 30 years, it's been just a journey of every, every day, hours sometimes a day, sometimes in the night watch, and, and about three years ago, I thought, you know, I've never gone through the servant songs like I need to. And when I went through the servant songs of Isaiah, and this is what's so spectacular. It's like I had never seen him before. Because in those servant songs, you see this revelation of the true humanity of Christ, of the true humiliation, of the true incarnation of what he actually became for us. And I need, to, I need to show you, expose you to just a little of that before we go on any further. Go to Isaiah for a minute, chapter 42. Verse 1. Behold my servant, 
there is a sense in which God's only ever had one servant, one apostle, one ambassador. It was his son. But look what he says. Behold my servant whom I uphold. Now just listen to that language. This is Yahweh speaking. I uphold my servant, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Look at verse 6. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and I will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and will give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. Here we see that in his emptying, in his becoming a true man, in him becoming the last Adam, we see him being upheld by his God. We see him being led by his God. And if you look especially at Luke and you see how he grew in wisdom, he grew in stature, we see that it's a true Man that we have before us. If you go over to Isaiah chapter 50 and you look at verses 4 through 6, we see also that he was taught and he was given a task. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He waketh Morning by morning, he waketh mine ear to hear as the learned. As Luke says, he increased in wisdom. He increased in knowledge. He increased in his understanding of what it meant to be Messiah. Verse 5, the Lord hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from the shame and the spitting. And so he's growing. He's learning. He's being led. He's being preserved. And as he learns, he sees the task, the divine task to accomplish of redemption of his people. And he doesn't turn away from it. He faces it. Do you see how this applies to all of you? Especially those of you who will be ministers. That as you, you, you study and you learn and you sense the calling of God and maybe you come here to seminary and you're being trained and you're growing in just what it means, what is God's place for you? And then all of a sudden it's presented to you, this is what I've called you to do and you must face it. Not with confidence in self, but confidence in your God. And along with that calling, all the suffering that will come with it. And you say, where can I find an example to follow? Oh, there's Paul. And Paul says, look not at me. Well, there's Peter. Well, look not at me. Well, let's find a contemporary example. There's John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul. And they would say, look not over here. And if you're wise, you'll bypass all of them and go straight to Christ first. To Christ first. To Christ first. Not to John Owen, not to Matthew Henry, not to my favorite Flavel. No, go to Christ first for everything. 
So we see that he was upheld and he was led. He was taught and given a task to which he was obedient. But now here's the big thing that I want you to see. Look in chapter 49. I know that you have heard throughout your life that Abraham was the man of faith. Abraham was the man of faith. No, he was a man of faith. If you want to know the great example of faith, the greatest example of faith, it was Jesus Christ. It was the man, Christ, Jesus. Look in chapter 49. Verse 1, listen a while unto me and hearken ye people from afar. The Lord hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft, in his quiver hath he hid me. And said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. And then verse 5, And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is as a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation until the ends of the earth. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and He shall choose thee. Now what's going on here? We're seeing all these magnificent promises given to Messiah. All of them laid at His feet. And yet in the midst of it, there is the initial response. And we see that initial response, don't we, over in Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? Who has believed? It seems that as Christ is going through all his ministry, all these different things, even his death on the tree, that it could be assumed by anyone lesser that all the promises regarding him, all of the divine promises regarding him had failed. But in him, what do we see? In the midst of seeing apparent failure, he still holds on to all the promises of God. In the midst of all his suffering, he holds on to the promises of God and he affirms them over and over again. Sometimes, and I've seen this, young men will somehow get involved with a ministry that is very well known. And they get involved because they're, they're good young men. And they attach themselves to that ministry and they serve in that ministry. And it's like the moment they get out of seminary, they join that ministry. And it's a ministry that is well known and is strong and prosperous and maybe has great and pious leaders. And, and they go on from victory to victory to victory. That's very dangerous. Because the leaders of those ministries went through years and years 
of believing that God called them and yet they saw almost no fruit. They just saw death. They just saw struggling. They just saw pain. And when you align yourself with a ministry that is prospering and you never have the opportunity to go through that kind of death, it is very, very dangerous. One of the greatest things that can happen to you as a young minister is to go through years of anonymity. Go through years of no one knowing your name. Go through years of everyone looking at you saying, we don't even know why we support you. Remember one time they were talking to this fellow, just happened to turn on the radio and I, I thought it was an interesting conversation. It was, it was a, some country music player or something. And they said to him, they said, how does it feel to be an overnight sensation? So I, I guess he, you know, he had some sort of a hit. I think that's what they called him. And, and he said this, it took me 20 years to become an overnight sensation. All the times of playing in little roadhouses and houses and bars and other things. Young men, listen. When you're called, I would hope that you would do the only thing that Saul ever did right. Go hide behind the baggage. Don't look for the limelight. And when suffering comes to you, accept it as the thing that is needed for you to be trained. And we see this in Christ. We see this Messiah who throughout his life as he's growing in wisdom of the redemption that he would bring for the people and then he appears in Israel and the conflict and the war and ultimate total rejection and yet through the entire thing he is trusting in the name of his God. In chapter, in chapter 50, if you look in verses 7 and 9, In verse 6, he says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore shall I set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be ashamed. I believe that we are coming into a time. We're already there. Where to be an evangelical is a very bad thing. It's like a yellow star that was put upon the clothing of the Jew. Someone made a remark the other day to a friend of a friend of mine, someone who lived in my neighborhood, and they told this friend of a friend of mine, this, this man moved in. He's like an evangelical. And he's like teaches and he's like a missionary and it's like like I can't figure it out and someone said why well he's one of those but he's so nice to me <laughs> that person's not being mean they're not being slanderous they've been taught to believe that if you believe in Christ and you believe in scripture you're a monster of iniquity and you're an enemy of the state and it's only going to grow. We're not living in the same world we even lived in three years ago, four years ago. 
You look at conferences, and they're, they're rather large. There are conferences of 6,000, 10,000. There's all these popular things and speakers, and you follow them on YouTube. Don't be surprised if it's all shut down. And the lot that's been given to you, the line that's been drawn for you, is anonymity and hatred and betrayal and slander and loneliness. Where will you go then? When there's no conference, when there's no help, when even your friends betray you, where will you go then? You're not going to make it if all your strength is found in men. You're not going to make it if all your strength is found even in church life. You must, you must know Christ. You must know Him deeply. You must know Him in the Word. You must know Him in prayer. You must. Or you will fail. You will lose. I was listening to R.C. Sproul the other day, and he was talking about institutionalized religion. Now, he was not against institutionalized religion, but here's what he's saying. He says, when people come to church and they get so enamored with church and they get enamored with the people and the clean life and the nice people and everything else, and they're brought up from, from child to youth to adult in this wonderful world... But when persecution comes, if that's all they have, they will fall away. Church is so extremely important. But if you are not cultivating a personal relationship with Christ, if you are not growing in your personal knowledge of God, if you do not have something more than what is written about Christ from another man, you're in trouble. And some of you are in trouble. Some of you are deeply in trouble. Your faith will not stand because you have books and not the book. You have concepts, but not the person. You must have this. The only thing that has kept most of us in the ministry is the vision of a crucified Savior. It hasn't been friends. It hasn't been results. It has been him standing in the door and you can't get around him. Oh, you need so much to dwell with him. To walk with him. To practice his presence. To cultivate a life of communion with him. You've got to go into the Word and you've got to see His power, His magnificence, His glory. You've got to come to drink from His love. You must or you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it, young people, with memes and Instagram blurbs. And for you who are more profound, you're not going to make it with an in-depth reading of a systematic. All those are, well, at least the, the profound reading of the instamatic, <laughs> are so beneficial and so necessary. But without this, without this, without alone, where do you think men of God are made? Where?
So I, 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 I almost run out of time here. I want to go for a moment to the cross. And I just want to read one text in Luke 22. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now this presents a deeply theological problem, especially if you compare this text with what we know from church history. Now what do I mean? So if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, if you read earlier works, if you read glimpses, even some Roman historians, you find that in the first three centuries after the death of Christ, countless Christians were crucified, fed to the lions, run through, covered with Brea and set on fire, a crude type of pitch or kerosene, beaten to the point of having their bowels spill on the ground. But here's the testimony. All these Christians, many of them at least, they went to the cross singing hymns, counting it a joy to suffer for their Savior. Now, how do we reconcile that with the fact that the captain of their salvation is in a garden on his face, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood and crying out, let this cup pass from me, let this cup pass from me, let this cup pass from me. How do we reconcile that? Under most preaching, you can't. Do you want to know why? I'll give you an example. I remember I was out working on the farm one day at my mom's farm. Had this old truck, had the radio on, this preacher came on. And he said it was the, the passion of the Christ was being shown in theaters everywhere. One time a preacher came to me and he goes, he goes, what do you think about the passion of the Christ, the movie? And I said, I don't have near as many problems with the passion of the Christ as I do with y'all's preaching. <laughs> But I had this preacher, he's on the radio, and he said, I'm going to tell you, if you ever want to know what the cross is about, you're going to learn it today. So I stayed in the truck, left the post hole diggers outside, just stayed in the truck. But what's this man got to say? He talked about Roman whips. He talked about crosses. He talked about crowns of thorns. He talked about everything except the one essential thing that made the suffering of Christ completely, absolutely unique. Do you really think that the followers of our Savior would go to crosses joyfully while the captain of their salvation lies in a garden crying out, let this cup pass from me if it was the same thing? The question is, what was in the cup? What was in the cup? And the scriptures are quite clear. Let me read for you. Psalm 75. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed. And he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Jeremiah 24, 25. For thus 
the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad. This is what changed everything for me, preacher, young preacher. And if there have been people converted in many places because of this babbler, I believe it is because of this one thing. When Christ was in that garden, sin fell upon him. The weight of sin, the weight of the sin of all his people and the wrath of Almighty God. I'll never forget, I was in a reformed uh, school uh, for children years ago, and I asked the student body, kindergarten, 12th grade, what was in the cup, what was in the cup, what was in the cup? And I'll never forget this little girl, she was nine years old, she raised her hand, and I called on her in true reform fashion, she stood up, stood by the side of her desk, put her hand on her desk, and she said this, Sir, the wrath of Almighty God was in the cup. That is the thing that I want you to see about Christ as the man of faith. Now, I want you to think about something. I want to, I'm going to read to you two passages, one in John 16, the other in Matthew 27. Just listen. Christ says to his disciples, in John 16:32 Behold the hour cometh yea is now come that ye shall be scattered every man to his own and shall leave me alone and yet I am not alone because the father is with me I repeat I am not alone because the father is with me Then Matthew 27:46 Eli Eli lama sabachthani That is to say my God my God why hast thou forsaken me Do you see the two things you will all leave me, but the Father will not leave me. I am not alone. The Father is with me. And then, Father, why have you left me? Now, this is what I want you to see. There has never been a darker moment for a man than Christ on that tree. Those three hours on that tree, I know in the movies there's storms and thunder and dark clouds and rain. I don't believe that's what happened. I believe it was the darkness of Egypt. I believe that if you put your hand in front of your face, you could not see it. Christ had to be shut up. He had to be shut up in the room. He could not even look out and see women mourning for him or even the fake mourners, nothing of consolation. He is now totally and completely shut up and the darkness will fracture you. And in that room for three hours is nothing but the abandonment of God and all the fierce justice of God. The holy hatred of God against evil pours down upon his head wave after wave after wave after wave after wave. And in reality, the Father has withdrawn his presence. He is abandoned. And all the wrath of Almighty God, the full measure due His people, falls upon the Christ. But in faith, blind darkness 
Nothing of God's presence, only God's wrath by faith. He knows that this is an aspect of God's perfect will. And he is carrying out and he will come through the other side. That is faith. Abraham, what was his faith about? He looked to his own body as good as dead. There was nothing there to uphold the promise. He looked at Sarah as good as dead. There was nothing to uphold the promise. Nothing. But he believed that God was able and faithful to give him a son. But Christ hangs on that tree. Trusting in the name of his God. Now, here's what I want you to see. And this so applies to you. There are so many parallels between the life of Jesus and Joseph that it's absolutely astounding. Someone ought to write a dissertation on it. They ought to write a book on it. It's mind-blowing. So I want you to think about this. Joseph is told, he's given a dream. He's given, as the psalmist says, it is a word from God. He's given a word from God. And what is that word? That the tribes of Israel will bow down around him. That he will be exalted among his brothers and the tribes of Israel. Now, you think... What do you think was Joseph's problem when he was sold by his brothers? When he was given to Potiphar? When he was then sent to prison? What do you think was the torture and the turmoil and the battle going on in Joseph's mind? What is it? That his brothers had forsaken him? No. Do you know what it was? That the word of God had failed. That the word of God had failed. That was the temptation laid before him. That every promise God gave him had failed. Listen to what the psalmist says. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron until the time that his word came. The word of the Lord, that is God's promise to him. The word of the Lord tried him, refined him. He was given a promise and all of it was taken away. It's what we see throughout the entire Bible. And I know I'm I'm trying to speak to ministers, to young ministers, to understand what you're going to go through. And it's what we call the birth, the death, and the resurrection of God's promises to you. There's going to be a time when you're called and it's going to seem like God is calling me into a ministry. God is calling me to do something. And then you're going to give yourself to that thing and many times He will pull back and there will be the death of every promise you think He gave you. And you're there alone with nothing except His Word is true. The birth, the death... And then the resurrection. Do you remember Joseph? When all hope is lost, what does it say? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without thee shall no man lift up his hand or foot in all the Egypt. In one second, God exalted Joseph to the right hand of Pharaoh, the most powerful human on earth. In one second. Well, Christ is in the prison of the grave. 
Everything seems to be a total failure. And then up from the grave he arose and ascended to the right hand of God. And it is though the Father said to him, except it's your word, not one foot or finger in all the cosmos. But what I want you to see, especially you young men, you're my burden, you young ladies, I believe you're going to pass through fire that I never knew. And you're going to have to hold on to the promises. You're going to have to hold on to the promises. But you're going to have to know them. And you're going to have to know the character of God or you're not going to make it. I want to close with this. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant? Now listen. That walks in darkness and has no light. We get to 1 John. If you walk in darkness, it's evidence that you're not a Christian. This is a different context. What he's talking about is a true servant of God who walks in darkness and has no light. Nothing. I want you to know that if you will give yourself to prayer, if you'll give yourself to the night watch, if you give yourself to the word, I want you to know there will be divine visitations that are so splendid you will have to say, take your hand off me, remove yourself lest you kill me. There are those times. But more importantly, there are times where there's nothing. 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 And look what it says that walk in darkness and hath no light, let him trust in the name of his Lord. Let him trust in the character of his God. But listen to me. You can't do that. I'm going to straight up tell you, some of you can't do that because you have not been with him enough. You have not been with him in the word. Young man, maybe you look at me and you go, I'm not afraid. I look back at you and say, you will be. In my 40 years, countless men have fallen to the left and the right, abandoned the faith, apostatized everything with far less fire being thrown at them than what most of you are going to have to go through. You hear me. This is a warning to you. It says this, let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. Cling to your God. And then listen to this. Behold all ye that kindle a fire, that compass yourself about with sparks. Walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks that ye have kindled. Ye shall, uh, this shall ye have of mine hand. Ye shall lie down in sorrow or in torment. And what is it saying? There are people who simply, they do not have such a relationship with God that when it comes to those moments of darkness and those dark nights of the soul, they cannot simply rely upon the character of their God. They cannot simply rely upon the inerrancy and infallibility of His Word and they have to go build a false fire or find one somewhere and invent something artificial. There's so much more to say, but time is gone. And so little has been said. But I plead with you, listen to me. I don't care about conferences or eloquence or preaching scores. I don't want to see you fall. Not only do I w not want to see you fall, I want to see you triumph. 
I want God to get glory out of your old rag. But it's not going to happen in front of people. Your discourses to men do not prove anything about you. It's your discourse with God before God, alone with God, that validate you. So please, you youngsters, become men of God. Become women of God. Men of the Word. Women of the Word. Go home and read your Bible over and over and over so that it's like bunion with you. That if they cut your veins, you bleed Scripture. And in your study of Scripture, in all you're getting, in all you're acquiring, acquire a knowledge of Christ. For those of you who 